In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote that Yeshua has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Wow. Does this mean that Yeshua abolished the Torah, the Old Testament law? Well, our guest today is D. Thomas Lancaster, who has just finished a new commentary on Ephesians that answers this and other pressing questions about some of Paul's most difficult material. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. I'm Damien, here with my co-host, Jacob Franzak. How are you, sir? Today, Jacob, my friend, with got a, got a live guest back on the podcast. Yeah, it's nice to be back with a real human being that's yeah. not, uh, just, not just the two of us. Um, yeah, I'm doing okay. We finally, we, we, uh, summer's been okay here. It's been, uh, it hasn't been too, too hot, um, and we've gotten plenty of rain. The problem is that means we're going to have a lot of garden fruit to go pick, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get roped into that. So uh, keep me in your prayers so I don't get heat stroke out there. It's Michigan, man. I live in Georgia. Don't talk to me about hot. I know. I know. Not, I, that, I, that doesn't work. You don't, you don't get the light. You don't have the luxury. I'm just not acclimated to the heat. It's all in the mind, Jacob. Anyway, our guest today, Daniel Lancaster. He is the director of education. Uh, you may know him as D. Thomas Lancaster from many, many of the books that he has written. He's just finished a commentary on Ephesians that answers so many questions about that epistle because guess what? Paul can be difficult to understand sometimes, especially when you don't have any real clue of the context of who Paul is and, and who he's writing to and why he's saying the things he does. But, you know, he the, Ephesians is difficult. Abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does what is one new man? Does Paul mean to say that there's absolutely no room in the church for Jewish practice, Jacob? Is yeah. Judaism dead? Has, has, I hope not. I mean, is that what Paul is telling us in this this book? Yeah, so like these are, uh, I was thinking about this. Some of the verses, so so if you if you take on a Messianic Jewish perspective, I think that makes the whole Bible like a thousand times easier to understand. Like so much falls into place, so much finally makes sense. However, there are like 10 verses or like 20 <laughs> verses that suddenly get much harder. Um, and you have to go back and and like take a closer look at them and see, well, is this like a translation translation issue? Is there like some context that, that's missing? And what Dan has done is he's go found he's he's found all this information uh, on these verses in Ephesians specifically. He's put together this really helpful commentary that's you know uh, that's written at a level pretty much anyone can understand, but it's still informed by um, all this great academic work, this relatively recent academic work that's being done on Ephesians. I'm incredibly humbled by the fact that uh, you just said 10 or 20 difficult verses to understand. I think you're much smarter than me. I struggle with many more than 20. But anyway, 
Uh, oh, oh, Ephesians for us for us messianic types who plant our plant our flag on the on the ongoing relevance and application of Torah. It can be a bit tricky to navigate this without proper background. So, yeah. you know, for a long, long time, this epistle has been interpreted as Yeshua ending the law because he tore it down, which mm-hmm. I'm incredibly excited to explore with Daniel. As I said. Daniel is all of the great things he is at First Roots of Zion. He is the author of the phenomenal Messianic Jewish commentaries called Torah Club. We also have a phenomenal small group community, uh, Bible study community that's based on Torah Club, and we're getting ready to launch a new Torah Club that he's currently writing. It's called Beginning of Wisdom. He's the pastor of Beth Emanuel in Hudson, Wisconsin and uh, has influenced your hosts, Jacob and myself, on such a deep level, with uh, along with probably a whole heck of a lot of people who read and listen to his erudite interpretations of the greatest story ever told. We're blessed to call him a colleague, uh, a fellow disciple, and a friend. And Daniel, generally speaking, is just a downright good dude. So let's get to it and learn something about Ephesians. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. Welcome, Daniel. Long time no talk. Actually, I think we probably talked this morning uh, in some meeting at First Roots of Zion, but welcome back. How are you, sir? Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be on the podcast with you guys. We actually, we have a lot of difficult subject matter to tackle here because there's, as as we were talking about in the intro, there is often a large uh, amount of confusion around Paul and what he's really trying to say. You're, 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 the, Paul commentary on Paul and his writings is no new thing for you though. No, me and Paul, we're buds now. We're, we're you, you we're guys good. go way back. Yeah. No, we had our, we, we had our difficulties early on. You know, we, <laughs> we, it, we didn't always get along, but you know, we've worked things out. We're good. Good. Was that in the process of writing the Galatians commentary? I mean, we know why we know why you chose Galatians because Paul there also has a lot to say about the law and Jewish identity, and it's a great like starting point, a jumping off point to talk about a lot of different stuff, yep. like Messianic Judaism. But what? So that was Galatians. Makes sense. What brought you to Ephesians? What? Why? Why this one? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean. I guess the why Galatians is just self-evident because if you're talking about Messianic Judaism, everybody's like, okay, have you, uh, have, have you read Galatians? <laughs> you know? Oh, so you're saying the Torah is not canceled? Well, have you read Galatians? <laughs> right? So, I mean, you had to do Galatians. We had to answer Galatians. Um, but um, Ephesians, 
I took on Ephesians. It wasn't random. Uh, what drew me to Ephesians to open up Ephesians and start talking about Ephesians with people is the seemingly never-ending Gentile identity crisis that we see in Messianic Jewish circles and Messianic synagogues and among mm-hmm. Jewish roots people. You know, it's like back it, under under the auspices of replacement theology. You know, you know, back in the day in the church, um, you know, every you didn't have identity crisis. Nobody has it. It's there's you have a very simple identity. You're a Christian. You're the people of God, the chosen people, the new Israel. You know, it's a very, very comfortable identity, right? Mm-hmm. But post supersessionism comes and pulls that rug out from everybody's from under everybody's feet, and and you know, you get like, whoa, Israel is still. God's people, Israel is still in the nation, is still a nation. You know, the Jewish people are still the chosen people. And so then, then people start to like, it, that's an exciting thought for about 60 seconds. And then people start to think, oh, where does that leave me? Uh, you know, and, and it is like the first thought must be like, well, I must be Israel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or I'm not Israel. Then who am I? Uh, now, you know, now I, and then the next thing is like, Wait a second. Now I feel like a second-class citizen, right? I mean, I think we've all heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and then what happens next is it inspires all sorts of anti-Jewish behavior and anti-Jewish theology, such as one-law theology, uh, you know. And and so it's like it starts to come out all sideways. But also, you know, I pastor a Messianic Jewish synagogue where these things are happening in real time. Right. Uh, so it's not just theoretical for me. So, so I was watching, you know, many of these these uh, brothers and sisters always circling around the same issues, like they're caught in some sort of theological loop, like a dog chasing its tail, you know. And and you know, it's like just keeps going through these uh, this this process of like, oh, the Jewish people. Wait, I'm not Jewish. Who am I? I feel like a second-class citizen. Oh, the Jewish people. Wait, I'm not Jewish. Who am I? And it's like just uh, the 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 hand wringing, the endless hand wringing. And I knew that Ephesians has the solution to this problem. So, you know, let's talk about Ephesians. Yeah, solutions. I like that word because that is the like number one dilemma that never ever ever goes away in Messianic Jewish space. Yeah. Yeah. Where do I fit in? Yeah. Well, and you're kind of killing a couple birds with one stone here because not only are you answering that question, um, but this, it seems to me after reading your commentary, which I love, it's like almost that these are the same problems that the Ephesians had. And that's why Paul wrote the letter. Like it's the Ephesians is, is tailor made to address the problem of Ephesian people saying, well, what if I'm not part of the thing? What what's what, what am I? You know, I'm not like a descendant of Abraham or whatever. So you know, I'm just some jerk from Ephesus. I'm not in the Old Testament <laughs> anywhere. Like I'm, I've been dropped into this thing, you know, from a helicopter. So what what am I? And so is is that basically the problem that the Ephesians had? Like why he wrote the letter to them in the first place? I think that's hundred percent. I think you nailed it. Uh, I I think it's a sociological problem that he's Paul's dealing with the same problem I'm dealing with here. You know, uh, Galatians uh, in Galatians, Paul was trying to solve something other. Uh, you know, the Gentiles were, you know, were hitting this sociological problem, uh, the same sociological problem of the I'm not Jewish problem, and they their solution in Galatians was oh. 
problem solved. I'll just become Jewish. Circumcision, you know, uh, conversion. Yeah. I can. I'm not Jewish. I can fix that, right? Mm-hmm. And Paul says no. He says that's no. That's not an option for uh, the Gentile disciple of Yeshua, right? And then, and so where does that leave the Gentile disciple? Now me sad again, you know? <laughs> so, you know, then you know, Ephesians comes, says, is like the sequel to that. It's like, no, here's, here's why, here's the orientation. Here's what I want you to see. I think that's, uh, but there's another problem that Paul's also addressing in Ephesians, which is, is related and no less significant. And that is the persecution. I think that the Ephesian Gentiles are experiencing from the Diana cult, which we see in we see the the roots of that in the book of Acts, right? That's a major concern in Ephesus and and in all of Paul's communities. It's a major concern of this sort of contest between the God of Israel and the gods to whom these people, these Gentiles, uh, actually originally belonged before they came under Paul's sphere of influence and the and the influence of the ap- apostolic community. That's just under the surface. Yeah, and it's hard to put our heads in that space because we don't always feel that conflict between where we came from and our nationality or whatever, and this the demands of being a follower of, of Yeshua. I have to ask a question that many scholars want me to ask you, though though they didn't tell me that. I just know they want me to ask you this. Yeah, Pauline authorship of the book of Ephesians. There. Are, there is some disagreement about whether or not Paul actually wrote this letter. Um, you believe that he did. You obviously are confident in that. Uh, tell me why. Okay. Well, I don't find the uh, critical academic approach to the New Testament to be incredibly useful. Um, mm-hmm. I often find the arguments to be built on some false premises. A lot of times, and you know, unless we look at a specific argument to say, well, here's why, you know, then we, 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 you know, we could address those. But a lot of times what you have is the scholar makes some certain assumptions about Paul and what Paul's about. Okay. So he says, oh, well, Paul, yeah, Paul, Paul was against the law. You know, so that's right. like the yeah, Paul. Paul was against the law, and he was uh, he he believed that uh, he was starting a new religion, and Judaism was done away with. All right, so then we come to something like uh, you know maybe in Ephesians we find uh, a, a you know a perspective that doesn't support all of those premises that the scholar has started with about Paul. You know his false premises about Paul. Mm-hmm. So he says, "Oh, here, look at this. This doesn't line up with what we know to be true about Paul. Therefore, it's pseudepigraphical. It's you know been written by somebody in Paul's name." And so yeah. then, once we reach that conclusion, then we start you know picking apart the Greek and, and say, "Oh, look, Paul never uses this particular construction of this word anywhere else." And you know, it's like, right. yeah. And that's you know. Honestly, that's above my pay grade, but I just don't find these arguments to be incredibly compelling. And they stand against the weight of the tradition that we have received from, uh, you know, from, from the apostolic era, you know, from, right. from, from early on. These letters were circulating so quickly, so fast, so quickly, and, and among so many communities that if you're to introduce, and people did try they tried to introduce fake Pauline writings. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the epistle to Laodicea, you know, mm-hmm. that's, um, 
you know, and, and they do stand out as like, that's eh, not Paul. <laughs> Come on. Right. Nice try. Right. You know, but, uh, it, it, I don't know. I, I just, I guess I've, that's probably not a great answer for you, but I'm just not persuaded. Uh, I've, and, and I don't find it helpful to, uh, it from a devotional perspective, from a pastoral perspective to say to my peeps, uh, yeah, we don't really know if Paul wrote this, but um, right. you know, presuming that it still has something of value for us, uh, let's uh, <laughs> open it up and <laughs> so. right, right, yeah. Well, and that makes sense. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, like you said, they they're starting out with. Um, I mean, you know, for a while the Germans were saying Paul only wrote four of these things, and the the pendulum, thankfully, has swung back a little bit the other way um, to say, well, you know, more than that, you know. Um, and I think the better we understand Paul, I think these things will will come into more focus and clarity. There's this sense, there's this like tendency to start out with the most possible doubt and work from there, which you know, well, that, I mean, yeah, that's that's the critical method. That's why we call it the critical method. It's yeah. like you, you start you you start assuming zero, you know, yeah. and build and, from there. But and, and, uh, and that's that's fine if people want to do that. I think I think they'll come around eventually, right? I mean, and even if not, we have like you said. Um, we have early, early traditions for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, early attestation. Um, yeah, yeah, early attestation. And like super early manuscripts for a lot of them too. But anyway, so about Ephesus in particular, right? I think it's easy to miss this, like if you're not paying really close attention when you read Acts. But Paul usually rolls into town and leaves after like a Shabbat or a couple Shabbats or like three Shabbats. He doesn't, he's not always like hanging around, but in Ephesus, he sticks around in Ephesus for like two years or something. And I always wondered, and since you've done all the research and legwork for this book, maybe you can answer me. What was special about Ephesus? Like his, his horse breakdown or why did he hang out in Ephesus for so long? What makes Ephesus a special place in the ancient world? It was, he was more effective use of his time there than anywhere else. Did his horse break down? I mean, I don't know. I've always thought when, when Paul says the Holy Spirit prevented us, I always picture like a flat tire. And Paul's like, it's all God, you know? Everything that comes into your life is, is from Hashem, and you got to have a Muna, you know? Did oh, you yeah. say his horse sprained his ankle? Yes. <laughs> got dehydrated? I don't know. Yeah, he's there a couple of years in Ephesus, right. right? You know, so, I mean, look, I think um, – Ephesus is the intellectual and cultural social center of Asia Minor. It's, it, you know, as you got the great library at Ephesus, right? It's, um, it's the center of that Aegean world. And, you know, outside of Rome, I would think it would be a primary target for anybody who is hoping to exert some sort of social influence on the uh, or broader territorial influence and so it just strategically makes a lot of sense for for Paul to set up shop there in Ephesus and it seems like he's got a strong community in Ephesus like a like uh, a strong community of support that he can rely on so he's there a few years until he's until he's driven out by the by the the Diana cult hmm. I, I want to ask, like the the just getting started with some of the the confusions. This is a foundational confusion, though, because all the times that you 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 can read, well, any number of things. If you're not really paying attention to what you're reading, even down to pronouns, you can and 
we won't talk about pronouns too much. It's kind of a weird, weird topic these days. Amazingly, who would have ever even thought pronouns could be controversial? But there is a grammatical clue that has been skipped over millions of times in Ephesians, I think. He starts out saying, God has blessed us in in Christ and Messiah. We have redemption through his blood. He's made known to us the mystery of his will and so on and so forth. But then, then mysteriously in verse 13, it says, you also. So it's about us, but then you also. So if one is not paying attention, then there's uh, uh, possibly some confusion about the you and us because you is different than us. Who are the us and the you in the first chapter of Ephesians? And why is this very important understanding the rest of what is being said in Ephesians? Okay. Yeah. This pronoun thing. And, and we don't mean, you know, to make an issue out of pronouns in the woke sense of, uh, Right. You know, making an issue out of pronouns, but this really is important. Uh, this is the key to unlocking the meaning of the whole uh, the whole epistle. Uh, it, it's in the pronouns here in the first chapter, and this is something that you know for years and years and years reading Ephesians, I read right over it. Me you know, too. It, it absolutely didn't register to me one little bit that he switches from the first person. A first-person plural form, in fact, us, we, us, we, mm-hmm. to a second-person plural form, you, 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 uh, it absolutely, you know, really made no impact on me. I just figured, you know, yeah, he's talking to the people in Ephesus, right? Right. It's like us, apostles, talking to people in Ephesus. If I even thought that far about it, I don't think I even thought that far about it. I just more likely just read Bible verses, Bible verses, you know, but... uh Here's what happened, and I have to give you a little bit of a story of how how we cracked this code. Uh, you know, First Fritz of Zion was going to start this, uh, you know, quite a, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe 10 years ago now, we, we were going to publish a Siddur. Yeah, theoretically, we're still going to do it. We're still going to publish a Messianic Jewish Siddur. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, some 10 years ago, we thought we'd have it done in about a year. And um, I remember that. Yeah, right. So, so Aaron Eby... Uh, had the job of translating, compiling, and creating this very innovative Messianic Jewish Siddur, which was originally going to, you know, just kind of be Siddur light uh, and carry also some New Testament inspired types of Messianic type of material in it. And so as he was putting together these, you know, this Messianic material that we were theoretically going to Put into the Sudur. Uh, he was asking for suggestions, and I think Toby had suggested uh, this first bracha passage in Ephesians, where it starts, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Messiah," and so forth, and goes on for quite a ways, as as you know, uh, because that's a bracha. You know, that's that's a classic. It's formulated in the classic liturgical. Uh, style the it, following the the same model as a bracha from a re, you know a regular synagogue type of blessing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It okay, so it sounds it, like it belongs in the siddur. Yeah, sounds like it sounds like it could belong in a messianic siddur. So the first thing Aaron had to do was then you know was to to translate this to Hebrew and figure out how it would 
how it would function in a messianic siddur. And as he was working on this, he took special note of these pronouns and how it starts off, blessed, you know, blessed be Hashem who has uh, blessed us with every blessing in heavenly places, it, just as he chose us and predestined us to the adoption of sons and, and so forth. And he noticed the sudden dramatic shift from these big sweeping us statements to the you also statements that begin in verse 13, you also after listening to the message of truth. And he said, oh, you know what this is? The us here, Paul is speaking of Israel. And the you also, he is speaking of the Gentile disciples. And that, once you get that, you realize, whoa, that just opened up the whole meaning of the rest of the book of Ephesians. That is the Rosetta Stone to the book of Ephesians. And so that's how we arrived at that. Fairly important. Yeah, yeah, fairly important. I I do want to push just a little bit. I want to bring up a point of, of, of argument that someone would make. Is that he sort of he sort of switches back when you get into two, and there's a lot to talk about in two. When all of a sudden he's saying, uh, you know, you were dead through the trespasses and sins, and then in verse in two three he's saying, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, and but God who's rich in mercy, which He loved us. That's that's the critical objection to what we're presenting here in these pronouns. How would you address that? When he switches back to the us? Yeah. I th- yeah, I think when he switches back back to the us, he's then making he's making the point that uh, we too, the Jewish people, uh, the apostolic community, specifically among the Jewish people, uh, the apostles, the apostolic community as a representation of the Jewish people, we too needed salvation in Messiah. We too needed this regeneration and this new hope and this new life that comes through faith in Messiah, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, we too needed to be made alive. So I don't think it's a contradiction at all. Instead, instead, it's, it, just, it just follows the same, the same formula. And I guess the, the, the end point of that objection is to say, see, Paul is saying that we're all us, that there's, there's no longer any distinction. He's grouping, himself in, he's grouping himself and all Jews in, in that way that there's no longer. And that's, that's not true. Right. The rest of the epistle doesn't bear that out. Uh, if right. that was really, if that was the point. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's he's trying to create the 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 rhetoric that he's employing is trying to uh, create this sense of of commonality. Like, look, we have this in common. Yeah, we are fellow heirs of the faith. You know, and, and so. But but he will go on to make distinctions, saying you're being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and mm-hmm. so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds familiar um, to me because I remember thinking something similar about Romans. Was it when I was trying to read Romans early days from a Messianic Jewish perspective? And I remember thinking, man, when you tease out the groups here and, and figure out what Paul is saying about the Jewish people, what Paul is saying about Gentiles. 
he it is like okay here's a bunch of things that are different and here's something that's the same we all had a a problem that through messiah um hashem is is fixing or has fixed or will fix yeah um so i i think this this us you uh we progression is not just a Rosetta Stone for Ephesians, but maybe for um for a lot of the rest of the Pauline corpus, because he talks about this to everybody. He's always talking about this sociological problem. Um, it seems like I mean, there's a lot of other problems, but he it seems like he usually has something to say about this issue because it was an issue that all of his communities faced. Right, it is an issue that all of his communities face. He refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is the number one gentile issue once once the once the gentile has become a disciple of yeshua this is the number one issue is this question of okay where do i fit into the kingdom because i'm not jewish hmm. uh, and you, you gotta think of what the social pressure must have been like just amazing social pressure of uh because everybody else is loyal to the gods you're right. not loyal to the gods anymore what have you become a jew mm-hmm. you know it's like no, uh, um, um, yeah. <laughs> not exactly. This is very diff- puts him in a very awkward position. I think Paula Fredrickson called it um, cultural treason. Yes, it was, it's just like these 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 are people who are 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 doing something that's taboo. They're doing something that upsets the gods. Exactly. Um, they're they're not fulfilling their responsibility. And your city is going to suffer. Yeah, yeah. Ephesus is going to suffer if you make, you know, Diana, Artemis, Apollo, Athena, whoever, if you make them mad, we're... Exactly. So you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So all you need is one little earthquake and, you know, <laughs> right. or what was it? Like, like Douglas Adams says, like one, one sheep gets born with two heads or... You know, anything bad happens to anybody, and it's like, oh, who, who, who's upset the gods? It's these, it's these people, yeah. Yeah, it's it's these it's these these traitors who have left the worship of the gods and are now worshiping this foreign Jewish god, and so yeah. it, the Romans referred to them as atheists and mm. haters of human beings. Uh, you know because because of their defection. And so right, then when there was a fire in Rome, who gets blamed? Mm-hmm. It's it's obviously the disciples, it's obviously these defectors and so that's why you had the persecution, the first Neronian persecution began not much not not long after this uh epistles written, right about a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to note that it would have been okay for these people to go worship the God of Israel, as long as they kept worshiping the gods of their places they were in or their ancestors, the other obligations that they had. Because, you know, like everyone was a polytheist, right? Yeah. The really strange thing that Paul's introducing is Jewish monotheism. Like that's a that's kind of the innovation here that's really disrupting um, everybody's lives, right? Right. Yeah, monotheism is is the big problem, and and also this repudiation of images is really offensive, uh, especially mm-hmm. there in Ephesus, where the economy is a, a big part of the tourist economy is resting on selling these little images of of uh, Diana. Oh my gosh, yeah. was that the question back then too? What about the economy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Follow the money. Wow. Serious disciples want to get past shallow teaching 
understand their Bibles, and know Jesus better. Torah Club is a small group Bible study where disciples learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective through in-depth discussions and good fellowship. Start a club or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. Well, I think probably the the first uh, the first real speed bump in Ephesians. If you're just if you're just gliding through it and you're trying you're trying to keep your messianic Jewish perspective. The first thing that's going to jolt you out of your car if you're not wearing your seatbelt here is this verse in chapter two where it pretty much just seems to say Jesus abolished the law. It says it in a really strange way. It says it with a lot of different words in a really in, in English at least it's a pretty awkward grammatical construction. Yeshua abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Um, but, you know, no matter how you read it, it seems like he's saying, okay, the Old Testament law is gone. So I guess, first of all, in case someone's clicked on this, and this is the first Messianic Jewish thing they've ever heard about, or, or they're like a first-time podcast listener, can you explain just briefly, why can we not just just say, okay, let me Paul abolish the Old Testament law? Like, why, why is that interpretation a huge problem for like the rest of the Bible and the rest of everything and, and, and understanding Jesus and all of that. And I guess the second part is, if that's not what he's saying there, um, what is he saying? Yeah, okay. That is, that is probably the most difficult passage in Ephesians. And I like the way that you framed the question because uh, you're, you're, you're basically pointing out like, look, this, this verse, if this verse says what it, what it sounds like it says, then it's contradicting the rest of the Bible. You know, so it's yeah. like, it's kind of like, this is one of those 10 or 20 verses you were talking about that's like, it's them against the rest of the Bible, you know? And yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, I thought about this as a, as a younger person. I'm like, God comes down on a mountain. Somehow the invisible God is, is in a certain way visible, and people go up and eat and they see the sapphire floor and they hear the voice from the mountain and there's, they see, they the 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 lightning or they hear the lightning somehow there's so many miracles happen at mount sinai and god says this is all the stuff never forget it you have to do it forever and then you know a couple thousand years ago someone 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 writes a letter and so that's the weight of the evidence right we have the entire sinai event with a with millions of people see this incredible thing and then we have a, a guy writes a letter and so you right. like if you if you had to pick one and they do disagree Paul's got a problem, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Paul's got to go. Uh, so I, that's that's a funny way to put it. Uh, but but you're absolutely right. If if that's if that's says what it what people say it says, and likewise, if if Galatians means what people say Galatians means, then it stands against you know it stands against the Torah, stands against Moses, who's called the greatest prophet, the one that God knows face to face, to whom he speaks clearly, not in riddles, uh, stands against the testimony of the rest of the prophets, the testimony uh, of of the Psalms and the testimony of Proverbs. You know, basically the whole Bible, all the way into the New Testament, stands against the testimony of our master Yeshua, who says, don't right. think that I've come to abolish the Torah. I haven't come to abolish the Torah. Not the smallest stroke of a pen, not a jot or tittle will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, right? And, and uh, is when you think about that verse even, as disciples of Yeshua, we're not even allowed to think that. 
You know, mm-hmm. we shouldn't even be allowed to think that, he says. <laughs> so it's like, how much less to build a whole theological system that uh, abolishes the Torah? But, you know, all of that, we still haven't solved the problem of this verse. So what does this verse mean, right? Yeah. Okay, so the passage in question. Uh, well, we have translation problems, first of all. Our translators are unintentionally, I give, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, They're, our English translators are unintentionally assuming a replacement theology paradigm. Uh, so they're seeing Ephesians 2, 14 to 15 as just more evidence of what is patently obvious to them already, and that's that the Torah is canceled and Judaism is done away with and the Jewish people are no longer you know, the chosen people. And, and so they have no problem just translating the awkward Greek uh, into English that way. So English Standard Version just puts it, you know, uh, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, or the New International Version puts it, abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, you know, which mm. that's, wow, if that's what your Bible says, you know, that's <laughs> that's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, there's not a lot of confusion right. on what that means, uh, right. but that's not what the text says. So in the book, I, I urge our readers to compare the far more literal rendering of the Greek that you get in the King James Version. So mm. in the, yeah, the trust, good old trusty King James. King James is actually a very good translation. It's, it's because it's so wooden. It's so strict to mm-hmm. to you know so so very literal in the way that it handles the greek so which makes it hard to understand you know yeah, <laughs> but, um, right. but uh it, it's it's a solid translation in that regard so king james puts it this way it says for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. All right, so that's King James. I'm not sure that helped anyone, but uh, <laughs> there's an extra yeah. couple of words in there for sure. This, this enmity idea, right? Right, exactly. It's what's being abolished here. It's not the law. It's the enmity between the twain, <laughs> between the twain. Uh, uh, so the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. So the, the odd phrase law of commandments contained in ordinances then needs to be understood as the halakhic argument over Jewish Gentile interaction within the assembly of Messiah, which is an argument that we don't have to speculate about. We don't have to just infer that it existed. That's that's a halakhic legal Torah argument that we see coming up frequently in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles, and it has to do with the boundaries of table fellowship and purity concerns. So we saw this in Galatians. We see this in Acts 15. The Torah is engendering this, you know, what you could call a sort of enmity between Israel and the idolatrous Gentile world to protect the set-apart status of the Jewish people. And every commandment and ordinance then in the Torah is marking out the parameters of who Israel is and who Israel is not 
Israel being God's chosen people, his treasured possession, while the nations uh, the nations uh, belong to, Paul puts it, he says in Ephesians here, he says, to the prince of the power of the air, right? Mm. And so the Torah comes and creates this dividing wall between these these two people groups, the Jewish people on the one side, the Gentiles on the other side. But what if, and this is Paul's, the problem he's trying to solve, what if the Gentiles were to cross over that wall? What if they were to abandon idolatry, abandon their gods, cast their allegiance with the king of Israel? Well, in that case, do we still need that wall of separation and from this perspective, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 isn't contradicting the master's words. It's not contradicting the Torah. Instead, it's indicating that the disciples of Yeshua have been brought past this metaphoric dividing wall that was separating the Jewish people and non-Jewish people on opposite sides of the fence, that in Messiah, he himself is our peace, you know, making the twain one new man. All right. So that's that's the gist of how we would understand this passage. It's not a cancellation of the Torah. Rather, it's it's a cancellation of the separation, the enmity uh, between Jews and Gentiles in within the Messianic Jewish community. Phenomenally clear explanation. Again, radically important to understand. I think some of the most uh, Ephesians 2 contains possibly one of the most important foundations for Jews and Gentiles being in a messianic synagogue together. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he's talking about, you know, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, that's about as good as it gets. If you're a Gentile to understand the, the, the power, the mission, the accomplishment of Yeshua for those who were worshiping Diana, Artemis, Apollo. I mean, yeah, this is yeah. phenomenally important to understand these identities. Yeah, and it, it gets to the heart of that that Gentile identity crisis that we were talking about earlier. It's like, it's like no, okay, second class citizen, whatever. You know, how about how about a next people? How about conquered people? You know, we're, we're, we are, as Gentiles, uh, we are the conquered people of King Messiah who have been rescued. You know, that's an amazing thing. We have this amazing role to play. We're, we are, we're the trophy, you know, we're like the trophy bride of Messiah, you know, that, that he stole from the nations. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's not a throwaway uh, identity. It's like the whole point of the whole point of the redemption is, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Right. It it was, it was the, uh, probably the most profound miracle for, for the ax guys, you know, was, Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is bigger than us. Yeah. (laughs) This is bigger than us. This is absolutely mind blowing and paradigm changing for them in 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 the apostolic community and when we're talking about pauline authorship you know just having that discussion these these types of these types of statements and paul's focus on this to me is the thing that really sort of cements this is paul's heart this is his entire mission this is his he's he was made for this and so he's speaking it in these in these amazing these beautiful words about identity 
It creates some dilemma, though, also, and let's talk about Messianic Judaism and continue on this identity thing. Many people read that as the destruction of distinction, that when you read the term one new man, that there's now no, and we bring in then other Pauline statements about, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no, that, that, that Paul is basically saying, no, Jesus did away with every single distinction. We're all Jews now in some way. I mean, like now we've, we, you're, you're one new man, but not really Jewish because I don't like Judaism anymore. And so we're just this amorphous thing that Jesus made by knocking this wall down. Yes, right. That's like third confusing. race idea, right? Not Jew, not Gentile, but some new, some new right. thing that yeah. looks like Gentiles. Right. And, and we have a name for that. We have there, there that's called replacement theology. That got it. That is replacement theology. That's the idea that, okay, so Jew, Jewish identity no longer really has, maybe it still exists on some sort of ethnic level or something like that, but it, it no longer has any sort of spiritual or legal significance within the body of Messiah. Uh, instead, it's been, you know, there's this conflation that's happened between the Gentile disciples and the Jewish people. And, and so there's no longer any distinction between the two. And it's really super easy to get to that position because first of all, it's just sort of intuitive. You know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. just sort of naturally intuitive, especially for Americans who, you know, were like, you know, uh, we, we, we have this sort of like this idea of, you know, the, the melting pot where all cultures, you know, I know that's no longer politically correct to talk about the melting pot. It's also oh, no longer politically correct to, to, to talk about replacement theology. Uh, so <laughs> so it, it's, it's sort of intuitive on the one hand. On the other hand, you can, you can string together you know, about six different Pauline uh, verses to come to that conclusion and just beat that drum over and over. It's one new mm -hmm. man. It's one new man. But as mm -hmm. Rabbi Schiffman likes to point out, why is the one new man never circumcised? I mean, it ultimately is the end of Judaism and the Jewish people. And it's certainly not what Paul is saying. It's if, right. if it does not, the rest of the epistle doesn't bear that out. Instead, there has to be the two in order for it to be significant at all that they are one in Messiah. Oneness is just not sameness, not, not in this sense. That's one of my favorite Lancasterisms, by the way. I quote mm -hmm. it all the time. Oneness is not sameness. That's such a that's such a fundamental thing to to keep in mind as you read through the apostolic writings. It really is. Yeah, it's also really good good advice for for marriage. <laughs> you know, for, you know, <laughs> there is no difference between Jew and Greek, male and female. But you know, guess what? What do the French say? Oh. Viva the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the enmity, when you when you said that word from the King James, it got me the thing that popped into my head. And I didn't like send you this question in advance, and I'm sorry. The thing that popped into my head was the enmity from the like the first part of Galatians, where Paul recounts this story of how the Jewish and Gentile believers, disciples were eating together and some, and Peter was there. And then some people from James came 
And Peter got cold feet and he, st he stopped eating with the Gentile disciples. And is that, is Paul thinking about that kind of stuff? Like if you can't even mm -hmm. eat with somebody because your whole theology says that they're gross um, or unclean or polluted. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of words for idolatry and idolaters in, in Judaism. Um, and to have people, to have people say, well, even if they, you know, I don't know what the people from James actually said. These people, I, the, these Gentiles had abandoned idolatry, but for some reason there was that, that perception lingered, right? There was still this, well, are they okay though? Like, are they, yeah. well, have they I, been cleansed? Exactly. Now that's exactly the issue. That's exactly, and that's, those are the types of incidents. That's what Paul is talking about. And that's what I mean when I say it's a legal, you know, this, the ordinances, you know, the law contained in ordinances, we're talking, now we're talking in the language of halakha, of Jewish law. And so the, the problem that the men from James are suffering is, is not, it's not even some sort of like bigotry, not necessarily like they have some sort of bigotry or something like that, or, you know, racial prejudice. It's, it's Jewish law that the Jewish, you know, the, the halakhic legal interpretation of the Torah is saying, look, we're going to protect your ritual purity status by making a, an ordinance, a law that says don't eat with Gentiles. Right. Hmm. And so even if they think, oh, you know what, these Gentiles, they're totally kosher. They're, you know, they're brothers and sisters in Messiah. But, you know, we, hey, the law is the law. <laughs> you know, hmm. I got it. So I can't eat with you. I'm sorry. You know, it's like you guys sit over there. We'll sit over here. It's, it's all good. You know, we'll put a mechitza between us. Oh, no. Um, that's 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 what is going on. And Paul's saying, no, the mechitza has been removed in Messiah. You know, this is hmm. a, in regard to these in regard to these sorts of things we can't put these, we can no longer put these Gentile disciples into the same halakhic legal category as an idolater. They, mm. they need to be moved into a different category. Uh, and so, yeah, you're, you're in, you're exactly right in pulling out that incident. You, you like Joe good, right? Remember yeah, Joe? I do. Yeah. Yosito. I like Joe. I think Joe somewhere along the lines I read, something about him drawing this the ordinances specifically directed toward the massive fight that the houses of Hillel and Shammai had about Gentiles did you ever read that I do that remember he, he's very specific about it I mean I'm not sure how he arrived there but it was it was a real thing that there was some real enmity even in Judaism about what Gentiles can you know what they can do Right. And so there's something called the 18 enactments yeah, uh, yeah. that uh, theoretically were led, was a set of legislation that was pushed through by the House of Shammai with resistance from the House of Hillel uh, and you know pushed through the Sanhedrin to safeguard uh, a, a bunch of purity standards, a bunch of ritual purity standards. And these issues, you know, when, when for example, when Peter goes to the House of Cornelius and he says, you know, he says, you know, it's not lawful for me to uh, eat with you, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, when I saw the vision uh, and I was heard the voice, you know, uh, so that that's where that, well, where does it say in the Torah that you can, you can't eat with a Gentile? It doesn't, right? right? Uh, so instead, this is one of these enactments. And and so, yeah, I think Joe Good uh, brought that forward and, and uh, I, I think he might have picked that up from Harvey Falk. I'm not sure. Um, uh, 
from you, know, you remember Harvey Falk's uh, Jesus the Pharisee. I uh, do, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm really confused though, because I thought Peter's vision in Acts was that we could eat bats if we wanted to, because <laughs> they came down from heaven. So now we got another podcast we got to do. I'm kidding. That wasn't about food for anyone who. Um, oh, you should sorry. do a podcast on that. That'd be that would that be really would be a good one though. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about the food laws? Question mark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My yeah. Goodness, I have a story to tell you guys. I have a story to tell you guys about filming Hyasod and discussing that very passage from Acts 10. Hmm. Uh, Just a bizarre, bizarre story, but another time. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a definite hook to have you back. (laughs) Oh yeah, we will. We'll once, once, uh, once a new high episode comes out, we'll have to have you come uh, tell us about it. What, what, what's good. What's been updated, improved, modified, corrected. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. So I grew up Pentecostal, right? My dad is, was uh, Assemblies of God, still is, I'm sure, you know, Assemblies of God, uh, old school Pentecostal in a lot of ways. This is why and, Jacob handles all questions related to the Holy Spirit. He's qualified for it. Okay. Have, you know, J- Jacob, you, you strike me as, yeah, I'm, you and Aaron Eby are, are the Pentecostals on staff with First Fruits of Zion. It, isn't that ironic? <laughs> You know, the, the two guys who seem to be like, you know, t- who seem more like the Vulcans among us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's maybe that's maybe we were compensating for something. Yeah. <laughs> um, Vulcans. Yeah. So anyway, I, I grew up Pentecostal. So as as I was reading your in chapter eleven, you you do you have this beautiful like um, you, you sort of trace through the whole New Testament um, where the Holy Spirit. Like it comes down at Acts 2, and then it seems from there mostly to to only come again if someone is there who, who already has it, right? And a lot of times it's laying on of hands, not always laying on of hands, like Peter didn't want to, didn't like touch Cornelius, but um, he was, he was still there. So usually, right, I, I mean, I can see where the Pentecostal churches get the pattern where it's like you have to... Like to get the spirit, you got to go get someone who has it already to lay hands on you. Otherwise, like you don't have the spirit and you're just pretending. Ah. So if so, if I uh, do so, but looking at all these passages together, you had like 10 of them that that sort of this pattern seems to hold. So, um, you know, should I go find someone who's been to Azusa Street or, uh, you know, can I get the Holy Spirit? Just like, you know, in my room. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, okay. I, I think that's, you're not wrong. That's definitely what's going on in Acts and in, in Ephesians. The Spirit is being transmitted through the original apostolic witnesses. Through It's mm. starting with that Acts 2 experience. It's, it's moving out from them like, like the flame of, one lamp igniting the wick of another lamp and, mm. and, 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 you know, one flame can ignite many lamps and, and so forth. Uh, so that's, I think that's very clear and also it, clear in Ephesians as, as we move further into the text. I mean, but here's the premise. Paul is talking about the relationship in Ephesians between the Jewish community 
specifically the apostles uh, as representatives of the Jewish community, of representatives of Israel, and the Gentile disciples, right? And he says, look, the apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors of the original Yeshua community, which is you know the, the Jerusalem community, if you will, we are the vectors transmitting the spirit to you. You know, that's, that's basically what you come away from, from Ephesians with. And you can see the pattern in the book of Acts, like, like, like you said. So I, I don't think there's any, there can really be any, much debate about that just from the textual evidence. But your question is then, well, okay, I don't have necessarily the apostolic witnesses here, the original apostolic witnesses here to zap me with the Holy Spirit. So yeah. um, is there some disjuncture that's happened? Has Is there some disjuncture between them and us and we're no longer transmitting the Holy Spirit or something, or is there some way that it needs to be transmitted? Um, and I don't believe that there is a disjuncture. I believe that the transmission has continued through the ages. I, I'm not I'm not talking apostolic succession here. I'm talking believers making believers, making believers, making believers, raising up disciples, even according to our master's instruction, you know, to make disciples, to raise up many disciples. But this is just one of the, you know, this is really part of the, the, this deeper mysticism, what you touched on with this question is this deeper mysticism that's running through Ephesians. I mean, Paul's not even trying to hide it. It's, I, I was going to say it's, it's hidden under the surface. It's not hidden under the surface. It's right on top. It's just like right on top, right out in front, all the way through the epistle. And uh, so, you know, that, that comes through the book. I hope it doesn't scare people off uh, because it really is a lot of Jewish mysticism going mm-hmm. on in this book. I hope it doesn't scare people off because it's, it is apostolic mysticism. And by mysticism, I mean, you know, by mysticism, I, I, I just mean the, the, the way that God interacts with the universe, the, the whole theology of how God, God's spirit interacts with his creatures. That's, that's what we always mean by the term mysticism. Oh, okay. Well, and Paul, sorry, Jacob. No, 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 no. You have your glasses on. So I know you have something important to say. I took my glasses off. So I'm just, <laughs> what does that say about me? My dad's a LASIK surgeon, so I'm not allowed to wear glasses, but it's because I'm about to be 50 that I'm wearing these glasses. Anyway, I know that the, the Paul, speaking of quote mysticism, Paul is not afraid anywhere ever to talk about the fact that we're, we're battling these unseen forces. You know, um, he 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 makes that very clear more than more than I think we had we see in other writings later. Later, of course, we see some of that. First, Peter does some of that, but he is a very spirit dude. And but what's interesting is also he's he's always practical, but then he sort of makes this switch, and that happens in in from five and six. Ephesians 5, he's giving all this practical advice about husbands, love your wives, and children, you better obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters do the same thing to them. And all of a sudden, you better get this armor of God because the devil's after you. You know, it's like, uh, 
And, and that's sort of what we all think about the armor of God is that this is our devil fighting suit. And we've got the, we've got the helmet of salvation and this, this, I didn't know the spirit has a sword, but it does. It's the word of God and it's part of the armor of God. So I guess my question is, is that really what that means? We're, 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 we're constantly putting on this armor of God's suit that we can be forever in a spiritual warfare battle. Is that what Paul's saying to us, that every day we need to, to engage in spiritual warfare and make sure you put on the, the armor of God? Is that what Ephesians 6 is about? Yeah, you know what? It really is, actually. Okay. <laughs> 100% fighting now demons, know. you know what I'm saying? Uh, right. Look, but here's the thing that we don't, Here's we're, we're missing the Jewish uh, perspective on it, uh, and I hope the book brings this out successfully. That um, it's not so much Paul's not so much concerned about like the paranormal struggle with like these unseen uh, enemies that these that that are going to like leap out from the spiritual realm and try to trip you or or you know whatever you're going to put some hex on you or something like that. Instead, yeah. the Satan is the evil inclination. You know, mm. uh, it's the Satan inside that he's really concerned about. Uh, and, and I don't mean to diminish the the actual malevolence of the spiritual forces that we are struggling against these these powers and principalities in high places that Paul speaks about. Uh, because this stuff that comes up in Ephesians 6, it's not just sort of an afterthought like, oh yeah, and look out for the devil. Uh, instead, it really is the whole, he comes to the, what I would consider to be the conclusion of the entire epistle by invoking this eschatological showdown that's happening between God and the false gods of the nations. So he brings in this epic sweep, this epic sweep of these these powers and principalities that want their Gentiles back. That's the mm. battle because mm. God has pulled a major heist through the redemption and stolen the Gentiles away from their gods and the gods are ticked off and they want them back. And that's the battleground. It's the gods of the nations versus the God of Israel. And in this final battle, they want the nations to return to them and to, to side with them in their war against Israel and their war against the God of Israel. And that's, that's, you know, that's called the war of Gog and Magog, right? Or uh, in Revelation, we call it the war of Armageddon. So this is what Paul is invoking here in Ephesians 6. And he says, so how are we going to, you know, how are we going to stand so that uh, against these powers and principalities, you need to armor up. You need to know that you're in a fight. And, and the, the main thing that you need to be concerned about is, the, is not so much the Satan outside, it's the Satan inside. It's the, it's the evil inclination within us that's playing on our insecurities, our weaknesses, our fears, and and even this identity struggle that's going on in the Gentile community, the, these Gentile disciples, as they're, they're trying to reconcile their place in the scheme of things uh, with regard to uh, with regard to Israel and the Jewish people. So yeah, uh, armor up. Well, that's pretty pretty cosmic. There, it's a lot bigger than I think most people see when they read that because oh, it yeah. has been personalized like so much. It's just my 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 suit. There's of nothing wrong with personalizing it, but you don't want to miss the big picture of what Paul is what Paul's talking about. Well, I, I feel like I'm starting to get a handle on Ephesians, but you know what? Um, uh, 
you know what, Dan? I'm having trouble with Romans and Hebrews. Do you think you can, <laughs> can, can you crank out a couple more of these commentaries for us? Or is that on the table? Or any plans for your next commentary project? Or will there be one? Well, you know, I mean, wow. Um, Hebrews is, has been on the docket for, for years uh, because I taught, about, I taught through Hebrews. I've taught through Hebrews at uh, Beth Emanuel Messianic Synagogue. I've taught through Hebrews twice, actually. Um, so I've got the material. I just need to, I need to edit it into a commentary. And you know, theoretically, that's supposed to be next on the docket. So uh, my, oh, that's fantastic. You know, I'm not going to do Romans because. Romans is Galatians. You understand Galatians, you understand Romans. It, it, re- it really is. So uh, I just don't see the point. But um, I wish to do Corinthians. I would love to do Corinthians. It, it's That's attractive to me. Um, that, that would be a lot of fun. Um, We're just going to visualize... We'll visualize a day when you have done a commentary for all of them, even though you say you don't want to, because you know you get bored. You'll, yeah, you'll, you... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. You, you began this entire segment by making a joke about how old I am, Damien. <laughs> you only get so many. You only get so many years, you know. And the truth is, I've slowed way down, or I used to just pump out, you know, like a lot of material, but. Um, I, it's not happening that fast anymore for me. The brain well, those is were, those, slowing we'll call down. Those the quantity years. These are they, although the quality was uh, excellent yeah, as well. No, but you don't have to say that because we all know the truth. There's a reason that I had to rewrite every single Torah club. <laughs> <laughs> well, may God continue to give you the strength to do the work that He has called you to do, whatever it might be. May your ears hear the call of God to produce these resources that are strengthening the kingdom and each of us as disciples. I appreciate you, and uh, we're incredibly thankful to have you as part of this team and, uh, as I said in the beginning, as a friend. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. But we're not done yet. Oh, gosh, I forgot. Because at the end of every podcast, we like to ask our guests a few questions that we don't give them in advance. Uh, we ask the answer off the top of their head, and all we can promise is that the stakes are low. Wait a second. You know what? You you guys hit me with at least half a dozen questions that you didn't give me in advance. So. Uh, but this this is the rapid fire round. Okay. So, uh, all right. So uh, these these are low these are low stakes. These are low stakes questions. So. Well, maybe not. This first one, maybe there'll be some strong opinions on this. You spend a lot of time there in Wisconsin. You got a preferred brand of locally crafted cheese? Uh, no. No? All right. <laughs> Just take whatever comes to you. Huh? Yeah. There is this little cheese shop near Ellsworth, Wisconsin, that every time I drive past it, I stop there. So I guess that would be it. That would, there you that go. would be it. But I mean, it's... It's such a high priority for me that I can't even remember the name of it off off the top of my head. So, um, you just went to Israel this year to do a bunch of filming, and you've been there before. Um, for our listeners who maybe have never been to the Holy Land, to tell us about your favorite meal, best best food you've had in the land of Israel. Okay, uh, so here's the thing: when I go to Israel with Boaz and I'm with Boaz. Boaz is a foodie. He's, he loves, he just absolutely loves to take you out 
to these fantastic, you know, kosher restaurants, almost, you know, it's not hard to find a kosher restaurant in Israel, right? So he just loves to take you out to these different places and try this and try that. And, um, or, or like, oh, this is the best falafel in Jerusalem. You know, we have to, you end up driving like half an hour to get a falafel or, you know, something like this. So he does this pretty much every day. I was like, I always feel like I leave Israel, you know, so much heavier. It's like, I have like, I've, I've actually like ingested, I've like consumed some of like the holiness has added like 10 pounds. <laughs> I like, I have 10 extra pounds of holiness on me when I leave the land of Israel. So to pick one particular, one particular thing out of all that, I, I'm not sure, but I, here's the deal. I love those Israeli breakfasts. The, and mm. you know those that you've got this you've got this spread of salty cheeses little salty cheese cubes and uh and olives and um and uh you know different tomatoes and peppers and fresh salads and you know all of this together that's the thing for me it's like that israeli breakfast is just that we could learn a thing or two about how to do breakfast in this country from the Israelis. Nice. All right. Third question. Do you think we'll get in your lifetime complete transparency and disclosure from the government about all these UFOs we've been seeing? You know, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're really uh, this. There's some amazing stuff going on in you know. There's some amazing legislation going through Congress right now, and uh, uh, there's been there's already been one round of hearings, and and I anticipate that there's going to be more hearings this summer. Uh, I think it's very likely that we will reach a point of complete disclosure because Congress is worked up. And they don't, they, it seems to me like they are not going to rest until they get the answers to the questions of what has the, what does the DOD have to hide? What does the Pentagon have to hide? What, why have you been obfuscating and telling the American people that there's nothing to these uh, UFO stories and so forth? Uh, and, and, um, and, and so th they want answers to these questions. And I think they're going to, I think it's very likely they're going to get the answer to the question. And I think complete disclosure is, is forthcoming from the Pentagon. And I even think I know what it's going to be. I think they're going to say, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I think complete disclosure is going to be, no, there, we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, uh, yeah, there's some weird stuff that we don't always know what it is flying through the sky and we try to figure it out and we don't know what it is. So there's right. your disclosure. So I, that's my guess. If that's, that's where I would put my money. Nice. Introducing Daniel Lancaster's next commentary, UFOs and the Book of Revelation. I can see it now. Oh, yeah. You got to have that Zechariah passage about the ephod flying through the air. That's something to that, isn't there? Ophanim, <laughs> Chayot, Seraphim, I'm telling you, it's all in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Final question. What's your favorite variety of apple to dip in honey on Rosh Hashanah? Uh, I'm not a person who distinguishes between varieties like that. To me, things are like apples, oranges. You know, there's there's apples 
And there's things that are not apples, but I don't really know one type of apple from another. Oh my goodness. You don't have a food, you don't have food distinction theology? No, I, it's, it's, it's an apple. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another Messiah podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this one as much as we did. It's always a pleasure to have Daniel. And if you are interested, which I hope you are after getting that little teaser from the podcast about the new book, you can go to ffoz.com and find the Holy Epistle to the Ephesians, Sermons on a Messianic Jewish Approach. I know that you will uh, get a lot out of reading that. And as far as we go, we would love to have your five-star reviews to comment, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't yet, tell your friends about us, and we will see you next time. Shalom, shalom. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea